Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Jose Cortez, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Oregon. His research and teaching interests include critical theory, Latinx rhetoric, writing studies, Latin American studies, decolonial and postcolonial studies, and continental philosophy. Prior to joining the University of Oregon faculty in 2018 fall, Cortez was Assistant Professor of Writing and Rhetoric Studies at the University of Utah. Thank you so much, Jose, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and what, uh, what inspired you to uh, come to the academy. So um, I went to school um, in Eastern Washington, um, didn't do very well in high school, um, and I foreground this in my teaching and my research that um, I wasn't the best student coming out and when I got to college, I started to have some teachers who um, understood me and my home community. Um, and that changed, that inspired me to pursue knowledge in a way that I hadn't pursued knowledge before. And um, I really fell in love with it and um, thought that I might be able to make a career out of it. So um, here we are. And what attracted you to the various fields that, you're, that you focus on? Sure. Um, it was it was it was somewhat accidental in the sense that um, I was an undergraduate in English at Eastern Washington University, um, and I took a course where we were supposed to reflect on truth. We read this Nietzsche essay, "Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense," um, and it blew my mind um, that I could think about truth in a different way. Um, that wasn't necessarily bad, that wasn't necessarily good, but it was something in the middle. But it was about living in common and dealing with the questions about what it means to live in communities, large, small, um, homogenous, heterogeneous. And I fell in love with that question. And to me, that's what the idea of rhetoric is. It's an, a reflection on this, what does it mean to live in common? Hmm, fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about rhetoric and writing studies. So this is one of your areas of expertise. Tell us first, um, you know, for the past, say, I don't know, say up until the, the end of the 20th century, how was rhetoric getting talked about and, and taught in the academy? First of all, let's get a sense of what it was, it, what it was and then we can talk about what it's becoming. Okay. Um, I think if we can play the believing game and hold a specific idea about what the academy is all the way back, um, then this answer can make sense. Okay. Um, so I think when, at least the story, the story in the field goes that when the Greeks were thinking about rhetoric, they were thinking about what it meant to come together and put disputes, um, settle disputes in common, in front of each other, in the polis, in the city. Um, and uh, the next example that makes sense to me is these cats in Scotland and England after the Union, um, when they're trying to figure out what do we do with some folks that are coming in from the highlands that want to acculturate but don't really have um, these ideas about taste and culture and living in the metropole and say London, for example. Um, so rhetoric shifted um, from practical modes of dispute and exchange into teaching good uh, teaching ideas about taste and value um, and preparation for um, an emerging sort of world market. Um, and I think that that's the legacy uh, about rhetoric and composition when we talk about a field, say, rhetoric and writing studies. 
um, what does it mean to a um, prepare students to be thinkers um, to use writing in a in a in a capacious sense um, and 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 together to think about using writing entering into um, a very changing world a very globalizing world um, in a way where they're going to be expected to um, confront and work with those who are different from themselves so uh, given those uh, sort of social political changes that have been accelerating um, there's all these new areas of, of rhetorical study that have emerged. So there's comparative rhetoric, there's ethnic American rhetorics, post-colonial and decolonial rhetorics. Say something about those developments and their significance. I think some, some, some folks in the 80s started to question this rectilinear um, origin story about re where rhetoric comes from. And one of, the, one of the earlier questions that I can remember is, well, isn't democracy an interesting thing when, when it's supposed to be the demos, right? The non-named all making decisions when folks own slaves, um, when women were not a part of this. Um, and what does it mean to receive that legacy, um, especially when we know that things like Indian boarding schools were happening, is that part of a legacy that we should be talking about? Um, is that part of the history of writing instruction, for example? Um, and um, after the, after, in the 2000s, I think, uh, the first decade of the century, folks then really begin to say, well, um, is writing uh, a thing that civilizations have? And does that mean that, that civilizations or cultural groups that have not yet, say, entered into writing, does that mean they're pre-civilized, um, pre right? These, really going back and looking at some foundational ideas that, say, like Walter Ong had, Thomas Farrell and saying, um, are we okay with some of the presuppositions that that sort of orality literacy split makes? How can we go back and rethink it? And when we did, um, we began to see that rhetoric and, and writing, in a, again, in a capacious sense, were something that folks across the globe, outside of Greek um, and Roman societies had been doing for a long time. So um, what do you think some of the benefits of these new approaches are? My research and teaching are informed by the fact that people are moving around the world at ever-increasing speeds. Um, so when we think about the students that are arriving at our doorstep, um, those may not necessarily be students, that, that it, we may not be necessarily dealing with a homogenous 18 to 22-year-old student population these days. So what does it mean to, to work with students from um, underrepresented backgrounds, um, returning students, um, students who may have had careers before, students of color, um, students with differently abled bodies. Um, and does our writing instruction, does our theory sort of fit these kinds of frameworks? So I don't think, as I see the comparative rhetoric, and that's where I fit myself, the edifice of comparative rhetoric is not to necessarily say that the Greeks were wrong. We need to just look at the right or better society, but mm -hmm. to say, okay, well, if we look back at some of these historical moments and these discursive shifts, what can we take from them to learn about how we work with ever increasingly um, diversified student populations at our own institutions? So you, one of your other areas of, of expertise is Latinx rhetoric in particular. So tell us a little bit about what's distinctive about Latinx rhetoric. Um, it's, it's similar to the previous question. Um, there's a lot of folks in the field asking right now, what does it mean to say, enter into a more culturally relevant pedagogy? Um, 
I think that's important, um, but I'm, I'm always the sour lemon, a sour <laughs> apple in the room that says, well, what does it mean to teach Latinx students Latinx forms of writing? Um, is that just a form of biopolitics? Mm -hmm. um, how do we continue to remain vigilant about um, the administrative um, push to squeeze more money out of students um, while at the same time sort of interfacing um, these discourses about diversity? Um, so for me, one of the biggest things that means is to say, why don't we look at the literacies and, and um, educational experiences that students bring with them and think about how those are valid, important, and necessary forms of intellectual um, inquiry. Hmm. Um, so can you say something about, one of the things that's going on in, in the composition program now at the University of Oregon is uh, interest in so-called anti-racist pedagogies, writing pedagogies. You want to say something about that? What is that and why is that important? So one of the assumptions I think of an anti-racist writing pedagogy would be to say that um, uh, what does it what does it mean when we ask students, what do we have to presuppose when we ask students to conform to standard written forms of English? Um, the first question to ask is, do all students um, access that discourse of standard written um, English equally? Um, is grammar an edifice that actually helps students write better? A lot of the data says no. Um, it can be important in other areas. Um, I, th I personally think that grammar instruction can help us become better close readers. Um, if, we're teach if we're thinking about an anti-racist form of, of writing instruction, I think, as I could, as, if I could nutshell it, it means thinking about what do we need to change rather than what students need to change. Mm. So could we think about, okay, students are coming here from a variety of different backgrounds they're going to access standard written English in a variety of different ways. Um, what do we need to do to change our curriculum and assessment procedures? One of the, th one of the, the really exciting things going on at the University of Oregon is that we, ha we are rolling out um, piloting um, new assessment procedures for teaching evaluations. I think that's incredibly equitable, anti-racist form of, of doing work here. Can you describe them a little bit? Um, uh, describe what? Those, those methods of evaluating, those methods of assessment. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of data that, out there that shows us that um, faculty of color, um, women of color in particular, um, when students evaluate these teachers, the results are skewed. Um, and so to move away from that, um, could be as something as simple as moving away from like a, like a number scale and towards something that's more um, open-ended. Um, and I think that's just one way, one right. way of doing that here. Yeah. Um, so another one of your areas of expertise is critical theory. And, you know, critical theory is this buzzword that, you know, for many years has gotten a lot of talk in the press and there were times when it was ridiculed and demonized. Um, so, you, I'm, so just imagine I'm an undergrad, and I'm I'm in and I'm in Professor Cortez's class, and he says, "Okay, we're going to start talking about critical theory." So, how do you begin talking to undergrads about what critical theory is and why critical theory is worth studying? I appreciate that you answer that question actually, because um, when I was an undergrad and I was first introduced to this thing called theory, 
Um, I, I had not encountered it before the university. I think that's common for a lot of students. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I didn't have access to it. And it brought back a lot of feelings of imposter syndrome for me that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't access literature. I can't access theory. Um, but once I began to think about it, I, I, tend to th I tend to describe it to my students as, as thinking unreasonably. Um, and that's what we do in the humanities, and, and what I would like to say is in the theoretical humanities would be to say, what does it mean to think what's around the corner that we can't see? Um, if we're to imagine f structural changes um, in terms of equity, um, that's not always going to be reasonable based upon market forces, based upon administrative demands. So critical theory to me means thinking unreasonably, thinking the unreasonable, thinking the obscure grounding of, of, of social change. So one of the characteristics of critical theory is rhetorical difficulty. Right? One of the experiences our students have is, it's hard to read this stuff. How do you negotiate that? challenge, that pedagogical challenge? Sometimes I think students are right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, we, we read Signature Event Context, a very, very difficult essay by Jacques Derrida in my course that I'm teaching this quarter. Um, and I really tried to foreground that, that Derrida is trying to, to me, what Derrida is doing is he's doing something similar to say like performance art. Mm. Um, or a, a movement like Dadaism, which is to short circuit your relationship to language so that you may relearn to, to approach language differently and therefore set the grounds to learn again. Um, and so when Derrida is performing the arguments that he's trying to make, it's very unsettling, but I don't think he's doing it in a way that was just um, uh, trying to upset people without any sort of like grounding. Mm -hmm. It was to short circuit our relationship with language to begin learning anew. And um, I use that as a pedagogical method of, of uncertainty. Um, let's put ourselves in, in situations where the things that seem most familiar to us may be uncertain and can we rewire relationships with them? And that's to me is, is critical theory. It's not going to make sense based upon what we have around us, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Sounds like good teaching to me. I hope so. <laughs> um, so yet another of your many areas of expertise is decolonial and postcolonial studies. So it may well be that people uh, are familiar with postcolonial studies. They may be less familiar with decolonial studies. So how do you differentiate those two areas? Sure. So I think of postcoloniality as not after colonialism, but say for example, in the Latin American context where um, you had some groups who overthrew colonial rule, but nevertheless, some of the discursive structures remain to this day. Um, and what does it mean to think about the remainders or traces of colonial violence that are with us? Um, decoloniality, I think, takes that a step further and sort of connects back to these comments I made about comparative rhetoric and, and says, what if we were to shift this sort of zero point of, of Western modernity, of, of knowledge production itself, um, away from Europe, not, not discarding Europe, but to say, what were other cultural groups thinking? How did they learn? Um, what, did, what did living in common mean to these groups? Um, not before the encounter, um, I'm not sure that's something that we can access. I, I don't myself think that we can access pre-Columbian modes of epistemology, but to say, how have these groups worked within these colonial structures and built 
um, community work towards democracy despite some of these colonial remainders. And I think that's why it's um, important and relevant to bring that to bear on what we do here, um, especially because the University of Oregon um, uh, has, has invested a significant amount of resources into that. I believe the U of O is a place that's putting its money where its mouth is in terms of working with diverse student populations. Um, well, may maybe I'll ask you this now because you've, you've raised this topic. Um, you were at the University of Utah, but you've recently arrived at the University of Oregon. What was attractive about the University of Oregon for you? For what, what stood out to me first were, were some of the um, infrastructural changes that it looks like U of O has made in order to work, with, or to do work with diverse student populations. The SAIL program, for example, um, the undergraduate research opportunity, for example, um, that's important to me. Um, my, just a bit about my background, um, my father's an immigrant from Mexico um, and went to Eastern Washington University and I went through Eastern Washington University um, a school that a university is very committed to working with um, diverse student populations. So um, I kind of found myself there and I felt like I benefited from great mentorship and great teaching and I have a responsibility to pass that on. Um, and I see like this is the right place to do it. So um, you have a recent publication which is a co-authored study on the challenges of integrating virtual reality into the classroom. So when I came across this essay, I was like, wow, people are thinking of putting virtual reality in the classroom. The argument of that piece is a really interesting argument. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, 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 uh, that piece of work? So I'll, I'll tell you where it came from first. Um, so I, I lived in the, in the Pacific Northwest growing up, and then I moved to Tucson to do my PhD. And I moved there, and I was unsettled. Um, I, I thought I'd move to the moon. And I had difficulty writing, actually, because my writing process meant sitting down in um, sometimes dreary weather conditions um, with some tea, maybe with the heater on, and that's the zone for me, so I can write. But when I got <laughs> to Tucson, yeah, it wasn't possible. So um, uh, I had a conversation with a colleague and um, a mentor, Ken McAllister, and we had thought, is it possible to induce writing um, however, uh, whatever the ambient conditions may be for different people. So we first thought, well, we, we had this environment called the cave at the University of Arizona, that, which was basically a bunch of screens and cameras, and you would um, um, put on a VR headset, and for example, it would model a heart, and you could teach um, medical students about the anatomy and physiology of a heart, for example. That was a little too expensive, um, not scalable. Um, but then we had the idea of doing this with Google Cardboard, um, a way of scaling into the classroom and say, and really the project then began to ask, is it possible to teach students associational thinking, the dialectic at, at, at its core, right? Um, to make connections where there are seemingly no connections. And to me, that's, that's one of the things that we do in the humanities. We make connections where there seemingly are none. We're inventing connections, we're inventing community, and our, our wager was that possibly, um, if we get if we could get students to make connections, um, could we get students to build bridges across, say, cultural ideological differences? Um, and the way we did that was we built an environment 
that had a memory palace in it and students could randomly select objects, say a tennis shoe, a golf ball, and a, a frog statue. Um, and they would be transport, they would walk onto a transporter and go into a different room, a contemplative room, um, say like a church or a library, traditionally contemplative spaces. And then um, we would ask them to build connections among these objects they had selected with very little prompting and um, through a series of exercises, see if they could train or, or get some exercise in this, um, what we called fat focused associational thinking. And what did you find? Um, we found that it was very difficult. There was a lot of technological difficulties <laughs> in, 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 in the process. And I think part of the digital humanities is foregrounding these difficulties because a lot of us weren't trained, say, as computer scientists. So I had to learn a lot of, of, of say, C Sharp in order to be able to go into a, an application like Unity and then be able to hopefully get it to work for students. So the article was framed around failure and the pedagogy of failure and, and telling other um, academics, it's okay to fail. Um, in fact, we need to fail if we're going to be thinking about implementing um, new technological and digital resources in the classroom. It seems to me that failure is one of the most important pedagogical principles that there is. I, I think that if we can help students uh, develop a positive relationship with failure, we can teach them to do some really incredible things. So that, that comment, that article uh, demonstrates, and, and you've demonstrated a number of times uh, throughout the conversation, uh, about the seriousness and the thoughtfulness of your engagement with questions of pedagogy. Why is it important for academics to th be, th be mindful of pedagogy, to think about pedagogy, to be conscious of what's the work that's being done in pedagogy? Why is that such an important thing? Well, I'll uh, reiterate a point that I made earlier in that um, for me, you know, I had gone through a, a public schooling system where I didn't have many educators who were safe from my home community um, and I felt a little ungrounded and I think maybe that's why I felt a little unmotivated. Mm -hmm. um, and the first time I saw somebody in front of the classroom um, who asked me to write a literacy narrative, I felt really unsettled. Why do they want to know about me? Why does that matter? Um, and I, I had writer's block and I, I, I failed that assignment. I didn't turn anything in. And I realized that um, suppressing this um, suppressing the self w was a good way of, of s getting students to sit down and learn in a very specific way. Um, so for me, when I think about why pedagogy is important, I think about building a scholarly community. It's tough when we have market demands where we, in, in, in most institutions of higher education, are asked, being asked with increasing frequency to do more with a lot less. So what we, whatever we can do to continue to build community with our students um, and to think about wrapping students into research, I think that that helps get students to buy into the content and to buy into the university and to continue to come back and support it after they're gone. So let's talk a little bit about your teaching. So you've just talked about wrapping students into the research uh, endeavor. So tell me about a class that you teach that you're trying to do that in. Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, the earlier example at the University of Arizona, I was asked to help develop some writing instruction for students who wanted to go into research careers. This was through a, um, what was previously a McNair Scholars Program. Mm -hmm. And students would 
um, get paired one-on-one -on -one with a faculty member, say in a lab, um, lots of optics students there, optical science, and then they would come um, into my space and I, was, I, would, I would teach, try to help them learn the conventions and genres of doing research in that specific field. Um, the first thing that I had students do was to write a disciplinary literacy narrative. And they were like, why do I have to do this? And I wanted to know why they were coming to their field of study. Um, and I believe that connecting students in, you know, from their home communities into their professional communities um, is a way of bridging some of these cultural, economic, um, uh, uh, all kinds of sort of gaps in terms of access. Mm -hmm. So when I think about wrapping students into the research and into the work that I'm doing, um, I think about it as, as, as a means of transparency. Um, again, foregrounding that I am the result of a lot of failure. Um, but also in saying, in modeling this, it's okay to fail, it's okay to be, a, that's actually the way that you get into research, mm -hmm. is, is weathering a lot of, a lot of failure. <laughs> um, you said you were going to give us a second example. Oh, yes, yes. Um, here, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a, a, a craft of the sentence class right now. Mm -hmm. um, and we're looking, we, we've done a lot of research looking at how um, a document that was written in the 1970s called Students' Rights to Their Own Language asked teachers of English to think about how to integrate students' home languages into the classroom. So um, what we've done is I've asked students to bring sentences from their home community and to think about what that means, you know, in interfacing that with wherever they want to go. Um, asking them to change is a difficult thing, but at the same time, I want to set them up so that they know how to code switch or code mesh, however we stand on that argument, um, when they go into a professional setting. To me, it's rhetorical. It's about making choices in your language to be successful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, this probably will be my last question. Um, what, 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 what sort of scholarly projects are you working on now? I've done the preliminary research uh, for another book project in which I would like to look at um, the reception of hegemony theory in the context of, of border studies. Um, I've, I was traditionally trained to think about the border as a site of like inclusion, exclusion, keeping people in versus out. But I'm thinking more and more, what if the border is more of, what if the border like a political border, is more acts more like a like a membrane that forces um, pools of precarious wage labor in. So, what if it's possible that the Contra Wars, um, the dirty wars in the '80s, set the stage for to to constitute very cheap labor pools for today that force people in? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Um, so, this is your next book project. Yes. So, what's the 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 uh, just to be published book project. Um, right now, I'm looking at um, uh, I'm looking at how I'm asking us to reread the the history of mestizaje and Latinx identity from the perspective of blackness. So what I've done is I'm currently looking at a series of Costa paintings where um, peninsular elites in colonial Mexico were envisioning what racial miscegenation looked like. Um, and the story we get to from that today is that um, Latinx identity is the confluence of the mixture between Spanish and indigenous identities. But there are a lot of slaves that the Spaniards brought with them, and that's kind of this infrastructural quality that never really makes it into the narrative of mestizaje and um, chicanismo and these sort of 
egalitarian political narratives. And I say, if we re rethink that narrative from the perspective of blackness, we might be able to think how we can develop coalitional party um, possibilities between um, um, oppressed groups in the United States today. On that hopeful note, Jose Cortez, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Jose Cortez, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.